today is the second part of our sermon series on what is the church. So something that has been happening over the last few weeks as we've been unable to meet in person, one of the first questions that we have to begin to ask ourselves, is the church still the church when we are unable to meet on Sunday, when Sunday gatherings were almost like our defining character trait? That was what set us apart. You know, when we went to our workplace and our coworkers asked us, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you say, hey, I went to church. And like all of a sudden you had the label of Christian. And that was kind of like what defined you. That's what set you apart, how you spend your Sunday mornings. And now that we are unable to meet in person, I guess you could still say, well, I met virtually, you know, over um, YouTube live with our church. You could say that, but one of the most defining factors of what set you apart as a Christian or what you thought set you apart as a Christian is now no longer available. And so what, where does that leave the church? What does that mean the church is? And so this has been such an incredible opportunity for us to re-examine and revisit what truly the church was meant to be. And so as a community, we've been journeying through this. Uh, even over the last few years, I feel like it was a precursor for us to begin to ask that question. What is our faith about? What uh, relationship do we have with God? What relationship do we have with one another? What does it mean for us to be a community? Now, last week, Pastor JP, he opened up uh, the sermon series with the first part, which was about the church as a family. And something very important that I want to reiterate to us you know, it isn't just that we're a family because we ought to love one another. And as we become more and more sanctified through the spirit of God, we learn how to love one another in greater ways and in more sacrificial ways and more Christ-like ways. It's not just that, but even taking a step back, the reason why we are able to do that and the reason why we're called a family is because even before creation, God is a triune God. It starts with a God who is family, and he adopts us into this family. And so this changes our entire paradigm of what it means to be a family and why we are a family. We don't just love sacrificially because we ought to, but we love sacrificially when we first understand that God loved us sacrificially. We can only serve those who don't deserve it, and we have nothing in common with because God served us when we didn't deserve it. When the separation between us from person to person, it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, our differences are perhaps by race, perhaps by age, occupation, education, um, upbringing, all these different reasons why we feel disconnected from one another. But if that is a big difference, can you imagine the difference between us and God? It's no longer just, hey, we're a different race. Hey, we were brought up differently. Hey, our political views are different. It's not just that. But the separation between us and God is much greater. It's the separation between one who is holy and people who are unholy. One who is perfect and creation that is imperfect. One who is whole and creation that is broken. And so when we start to meditate on what the church is, we first need to start with who God is. And so today, uh, for our, our sermon series, I'm going to be preaching on the second part. We could talk about so many different things. And once again, I don't want us to think that this is exhaustive and that this is comprehensive. But today, what I'll be preaching on is the church as the bride. The church as the bride. 
The church is not just a family. The church is not just a temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is not just priesthood. It's not just a body, but it is also a bride. And before I get into this, especially for people who uh, might not have heard this concept being preached upon, um, I want to give just a few disclaimers. First of all, it is, this is not the quote-unquote Jesus is my boyfriend kind of message where it's all about being lovey-dovey, where it's all about feeling warm and fuzzy on the inside and going on dates with Jesus and all of that. It's not about that. It's much greater, much deeper, more profound, and even more eternal than just a temporary and perhaps often, often sentimentalized view of who God is. Second disclaimer, and this is just simply for time's sake, I won't go into depth regarding the difference between the church and Israel. And that is something that we hopefully in the future will talk about a bit more exhaustively. But for the, for the intents and purposes of today's message, we're going to just talk about the church with a capital C, meaning all believers for all time in all of history. Church with a capital C, not just your local community, church with a, with a lowercase c, but we're talking about church with a capital C and as a collective. So we're not talking about me as a bride. We're talking about us as a bride of Christ. So that is my disclaimer. Um, let me just start out with, this is an anecdote that I've told before, but it was so, um, it marked me and it really stayed with me over the years. And it was, you know, my first day in class years and years ago at a Christian counseling class. So it was my first date and we all sat down and then the professor came up to the front and the first question he asked was, what is the most important question in all of life? And we're like, how do you start something out like that with such a broad and profound question? And so we threw out some ideas, you know, we, we threw out, you know, um, um, I don't know, what is happiness? What is life? What is the, the meaning and purpose of humanity? We, we began to throw out all these different questions. What is the most important question for us to ask in all of life? And after a while, after, after giving all these different alternatives and options for questions that we ought to ask ourselves, this is the question that the professor uh, proposed to us. And it is, who is God? All of life begins with the question, who is God? Now, in the context of a class that was meant to be very practical, it was a Christian counseling class. So we're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with helping people who are going through depression, who, are, who have anxiety problems, who are going through a divorce, who are, you know, all these different things that life kind of throws at us. How does a question as broad and as vague as who is God, what relevance does that have with our daily life? And this was his case. He said, hey, imagine you're talking to a person who is dealing with anxiety. You have to begin to probe into the reasoning and the root of why there's anxiety. And that means that the person who's dealing with anxiety has certain beliefs about themselves. Perhaps there's insecurity there. Perhaps there's uncertainty there. Perhaps there's a sense of failure there. Perhaps there's a sense of hopelessness there. But then if you were to probe a, big, a bit deeper, ultimately the question will shed light on what you actually believe about God. If you believe 
You have anxiety because you believe that there's no hope and future for you because you feel like you failed. Then it means that your understanding of who God is, it means that he is a God who's unforgiving. He's a God who tallies your mistakes and your wrongs. He's a God who doesn't have the best in store for you. He's a God, you know, and you can continue to basically, uh, you know, expand the ramifications of what that means. If you're going through a season where you feel very unseen or neglected, then that means that your view of yourself is I am someone who's dispensable. I am someone who is unseen when nobody else sees me. And then that means that your view of God, by extension, it means this is a God who actually doesn't care about me. He cares about all of us, maybe in a cosmic, broad, ambiguous, abstract kind of way. But he's not a God who is intimately acquainted with me. He's a God who sometimes forgets that I'm here, that I'm breathing, that I have problems, that there's things that I'm praying for. And so my understanding of who God is, is painted by all these different things. And it shows up in our lives through our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. And so this is a very, um, hopefully, instructive uh, diagram for us. So if we are to ask today the question of what is the church? What is the church meant to be? And we are starting from the point of what are our thoughts, our feelings, our actions? What ought we be as a church? We can't just start at what is a church. We actually have to start even before that at who is God. So when we are wrestling with this question, what is the church? We have to first backtrack and think about who is God in respect to that. And from there, we can begin to paint a picture of what the church is, what the church is meant to be. If we were to go back to this idea of the church as a bride, I have to honestly admit this was a concept that I had very little grid for. It didn't really fit into my understanding of who God was. For many years, when I, as I was raised in the church, um, I wasn't kind of raised uh, at the church from, from very, very young. But, you know, when I was in elementary school, that's when I started going to church. And um, my idea of who God was was very limited. So I understood God to be a judge, perhaps policing what I was doing right and wrong. Perhaps an exasperated and impatient power that would get disappointed with my mess-ups. That would keep a tally of my mistakes. And that needed me to make him proud as a father. So my understanding of Christianity and my relationship with God, it was very functional in nature. I felt like as long as I'm behaving, then I'm on good terms with God. The moment I mess up, man, my relationship with God is in peril. Like, I don't know where I stand with him anymore. And that was a very subconscious thought and subconscious understanding that I had about God. Nobody ever told me this. Nobody ever preached about it this way. But the conclusions that I came to regarding God and regarding my relationship with him, it was that. That God required me not to bring shame upon my family or my church Someone who would disown me if I were struggling. Someone who was waiting, to, waiting for me to get my act together before extending his love to me. And so at a subconscious level, my understanding of his love was that it was very conditional. It was very volatile. And it was always changing depending on what I brought to the table any given moment. 
And so even just that, that was a subconscious thought. I never really truly understood how warped and incomplete my understanding of who God was. Um, I never really saw that until I was challenged with this idea that God sees a church as his bride. And so for us to understand this concept, it means that we need to start by changing our perception of who God is. This past week, as I was thinking about how on earth to preach this and how to make it understandable, how to make it graspable, I kind of started feeling pressure. Like, man, I, need, I feel the pressure to get people to understand that it's important for us to give our hearts to him. It's important for us to have no mixture. It's important for us to be wholehearted in our pursuit of him. And I began to see it in a very one-sided kind of way. And as I began to take this to the place of prayer, what I felt God really impressing upon my heart was don't start with that. Start with the fact, not just that the church is a bride, but I am a bridegroom. I'm a jealous bridegroom, a God who longs to see his bride wholehearted in love, abandoned in worship, free from sin, free from chains, soaring and running in this partnership that we have together. It it starts with an understanding that God is the one who initiates this. God is the one who pursues us. And in response, we are a church that is a bride. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what holy jealousy and what perfect love, what divine wisdom in a relationship looks like. Because in this life, no matter how good, how healthy a relationship is, It is still a broken person relating with a broken person. It is still a person in need of healing, trying to love a person in need of healing. We cannot imagine just from our own experience what perfect love could look like. And we're not talking about a sentimental and over-idealized depiction of what love looks like, you know, in the movies or in books or just in our minds. In all of our efforts to love as best as we can, we know without a shadow of a doubt that our love is far from perfect because we are far from perfect. And so the first question that I have to ask for us to fully begin to understand what it means to understand God as a bridegroom and the church as a bride is can you imagine with me just for a moment what would a perfect being, what, how would a perfect being love perfectly? That means a being that has no insecurity. There is no woundedness in the way that they love. There is no manipulation in the way that they love. There is no unawareness in the way that they love. They're not trying to get more from you than what they receive. There is no exerting their own interests and their own agenda for their own benefit, but a being who loves perfectly because they themselves are perfect. So this, is, this begins to expand perhaps our imagination in what it could look like to be loved perfectly by a being who is perfect. Now we see this all over the Bible. I wish I could just pinpoint one verse that could depict it perfectly. But in honesty, it's all over the Bible. For example, in Jeremiah 31, it says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. 
Isaiah 65, it says, All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Ezekiel 34, when the shepherds are abusing the sheep and taking advantage of them, God says, I will rescue my flock from their mouths and will not, and they will no longer be food for them. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep. Matthew 23 When Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill prophets and stone those who who are sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing? All throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, we see a depiction of a God who's jealous, who pursues who will not give up a God who is faithful all the way to the end without any guarantees. All throughout the Bible, we see this God pursuing his people despite their turning away. A God intervening when the stakes are high and there is no other hope. We see a God rescuing a broken and unfaithful people. We see God loving and giving a new chance for the second, third, fourth, millionth time. We see God orchestrating circumstances around God's people, not for the sake of comfort per se, but for the sake of closeness, purity of worship, freedom in life. We see a depiction all throughout the Bible of a God who's not indifferent and distant and conditional in his love, but we see a God who runs first, who meets us first, who loves us first. And we see this all over the Bible. And that is where we ought to begin when we ask the question, so what, should, what ought the church be? As we see this picture over and over, chapter after chapter, book after book in the Bible of a God who does not give up in his love for his bride, we also, three, we also see all throughout the Bible a God who pleads with his people, turn to me. You weren't made to do this alone. You're broken. Let me heal you. You're hopeless. Let me give you hope in a future. You were made for more. You're made to come alive. You're made to live free from sin that so easily entangles. You're meant to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. You're made to lean on your beloved in times of wilderness. You're meant to, you're meant to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We see this God pleading with his people to turn to him, not out of a fear of punishment, not out of You better love me the way that I'm asking you to love me. We see a God that's pleading with a broken people. Come, love me. You'll find healing. You'll find wholeness. You'll find refreshment. You'll find eternity. So that is the backdrop. And what begins to happen in response to God that moves in that way, that loves first in that way, we start to see more and more in focus a picture of a church That responds to a God who's ever pursuing her, who is coming close in forgiveness, who's coming close in healing. And so from that place, we begin to see what the church was meant to be. I'm just going to go over three different characteristics that define the church as a bride. The first is the church as a bride was meant to be a church of love without mixture. So all over the Bible, we see God referring to the relationship between him and his people as that of a husband and a wife. And the more I think about it, there's no better analogy that could describe this relationship. 
It is a God who not only works on behalf of those he loves, but also a God who makes himself vulnerable, betrayable, affectable. And so idolatry, as we see it in the Bible, is not just idolatry. It is actually depicted as adultery in the context of a marriage covenant. We see this all over the Bible. One of the books where we see it most clearly is the book of Hosea 2. And I don't have the time to go really, really deep into it. But the book starts off with this very weird and odd request that God makes to this prophet. And he says, Hosea, I want you to go marry someone that I know is going to betray you. I know they're going to humiliate you. I know they're going to drag your name through the mud. I know that they're going to run after every other lover, no matter how good of a husband you are. And this is something that he asks of a man of God. Now, I don't know what you guys would feel if God ever asked that of you, but I know on my end, I better be for darn sure that that is the Lord. And the reason behind this, it was God saying to the prophet, I'm going to show you what it feels like for me as God to love a broken people. That's what it's going to be like. You're going to feel the betrayal. You're going to feel the heartbreak. You're going to feel the hopelessness as you see your wife running after all these other things when you are providing not just more than enough, but you're providing safety. You're providing um, provision. You're providing everything that she needs. You're providing love, intimacy, family. You're providing all these things, and yet she's going to turn away from you. And so we see in Hosea, God showing this prophet, this is what it looks like to hurt and to pursue and to forgive and to redeem and to heal and bring someone back into wholeness. We see God speaking about his people committing idolatry of foreign gods, which is the same as committing adultery within the marriage covenant. And there's a, there's a part that I often quote from this book, and it's from Hosea 2. We see God bringing his people through a season of wilderness, a season of dryness, where everything is stripped away. But we see it, we see not just what's happening, but we see the motivation behind it. And it is shocking to see that God does this with his people, not for punishment, but for restoration. This is what Hosea chapter 2 says. It says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will bring her into the desert, and there I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she won't feel defeated. She won't feel condemned. There she will sing as in the days of her youth. As in the day she came up out of Egypt, in that day, declares the Lord, she will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. So this is other gods, foreign gods that she was worshiping. I will remove those idolatrous, adulterous names from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, and love, and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Isn't that such a beautiful picture 
of the way that God deals with us in loving kindness. Often when things go wrong in our lives, we begin with accusation. We're like, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. What is this? And sometimes we don't see the bigger picture. Often it is just God drawing us to a place where we can no longer invoke those names of idols. We can no longer hold those names of Baals on our lips. We begin to cry out for the Lord. So the church that God envisions at the end of all this, it is a church that loves God, not just obeys God, not just tolerates God, but a God, a, a church that loves and loves without mixture. That is your destiny. That is my destiny. That is the destiny of a church, a church that cries out to him, that loves him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. A, a church that understands that there's only one, a church that lets go of everything else that could be a crutch, everything else that could offer comfort and safety and stability, giving up all those other things in order to hold fast and cling on to God without mixture. That is a picture of the church as a bride, a church that is filled with love for God without mixture. Second, what it means to be a bride, it is, it means to be a church that is filled with strength and perseverance. In the book of Romans, we see the church responding to persecution, to danger, to betrayal, to hardship, where they fear for their lives. And what's, what holds them fast in that moment what helps them overcome, it isn't just this vague idea or this philosophy or this distant God that is somewhere out there, but in the midst of those circumstances, the one thing that holds them fast, it is the love of Christ. We see in Romans chapter 8, how in the midst of persecution, famine, danger, sword, the church is more than conquerors, not because of commitment, not because of discipline, not because of simple obedience. It is through Christ who loved us. It continues on to say there's no death. There's no life. There are no angels, no demons, no present, no future, nothing in all creation that could separate us from this love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it isn't just a church that is a good follower or a good servant to their master is a church that is so overwhelmed with the love of Christ that holds fast to her in the midst of danger, betrayal, hardship, persecution, in the midst of lack, in the midst of uncertain circumstances, in the midst of that, that is the love of God that holds fast to her. It's not just in the, books, in the book of Romans, but also in the book of Song of Songs, where it, de- it describes the love of God as a love that is stronger than the grave. Even when you are in danger of death and even when you die, there's a love that is stronger than the grave and that no waters can quench. That is the love of God. I don't know about you, but I know very clearly that for myself, I don't have the self-discipline that it takes. I don't have the grit that it takes. I don't have the willpower and follow through that it takes to love God all my life. I know that I'm very, 
volatile. I know that I'm very fickle. I know that I'm really quick to do certain things and fizzle out very quickly. I know that that is my human condition. And so when I understand that God is able to hold fast to me, not out of obligation, but out of love, there is this new dimension that opens up to me as I begin to understand what the power of the bride of Christ looks like. It is something that is much greater than just, you know, I'm going to try out this church thing. I'm going to try out this, you know, being a Christian thing for as long as I can. And let's hope for the best. No, it's something much more eternal, much more secure than that. And that is that God, through his love, through his pursuit as a bridegroom, he has secured for himself a bride that will be spotless without wrinkle when he comes and that she is going to be strong and persevere through anything that is thrown her way because this is God's promise for his bride. God will have his bride. Now, lastly, the third thing that I want us to think through as the identity of the church as a bride, it is that it is a church that partners with him And shares a future with him. So imagine with me just for a second. Imagine you are engaged to get married. And for months and months, you are thinking through and preparing through and paying for and planning for everything. From what flowers to use at the wedding, what color schemes, what the guest list is going to look like, what the menu is going to look like, what the dresses of the the bridesmaids are going to look like, uh, the vows, the rings. You're thinking about all these different things for months and months and months and months. And then finally day comes and the wedding is beautiful. And it is perfect. And it goes exactly as planned. And then right after this amazing wedding, after the guests go home and the lights turn off, you go to your house and your bridegroom goes to his house. And you're like, peace, that was great. Man, that was really fun. Now, uh, I hope you have a good time and bye. I'll see you some other time. That doesn't make any sense. And sometimes when we think about the church, we're just thinking about the wedding. Like, man, I just hope I make it to the wedding. We're not thinking about what goes beyond the wedding. It's not just about the wedding. It's not the end point. It is the beginning of a life shared together, lived together, worked together. In the same way, as ridiculous as it would sound for just, a, a you know, a, a group, not a group, a a pair, you know, a couple thinking just about their wedding, but not about the life that, that will start on the other side of it. Just like that would be completely absurd and ridiculous. A church that doesn't, doesn't think about a future shared together with Christ is, is just as absurd as that. Does that make any sense? Like the the wedding is not the end point. The, The point of this whole thing is a life shared together and lived together. This life that we live right now with all of its uncertainty, with all of its curveballs, with all of the things that are thrown our way, this is only the prelude. This is only the, you know, the, the lead up into a life shared together with Christ. 
in Revelation 21, at the very end of an entire book that talks about all these different things that are going to happen in the end times, all these different things that we have like no grid for, we can only grasp at it with, with like mental pictures and images that, you know, are, are kind of going at what it's going to look like. And yet we don't fully understand what that would look like on that magnitude in revelation 21 at the very end of this, we see uh, a new heaven and a new earth coming down because the first heaven, the first earth that earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And then it says, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming out of the, uh, coming out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with man. It's not just a visitation. It's not just a temporary thing. It is the dwelling of God, the remaining of God, the living with of God is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is where it's all headed. This is where it's all ending. But also this is where it's beginning together as a husband and as a wife, the bridegroom and his bride that has made it through tribulation, that has made it through persecution, famine, natural disaster, war, has made it through all of these things and is now presented to her bridegroom. So for us to understand what it looks like to be the church as a bride, it will require us to think beyond our immediate circumstances. It will require us to properly gauge and properly put things into perspective when it comes to our our eternal destiny with God. Once again, this is not, this is not very easy for us to wrap our minds around. That is kind of the point. It's not saying that this eternal destiny with God It's something like this greater reality that we understand, which is the relationship between husband and wife. It's actually the opposite. It is this relationship that we have here on this earth, which looks like marriage between husband and wife, being committed to someone for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years. That is just a glimmer. That is just a a smidge, just scraping the surface of what it looks like to relate to God as his bride, and as his church. And so it is something small, temporal, like just here on this earth that is pointing us to greater reality of something that we will taste and see, something that we will experience with God as well. And so this gives us and fleshes out a little bit of what it means to be his bride as a church. And from this understanding from this understanding of what it means, what it looks like, what we're destined to be, from that place, we have the courage, we have the hope, we have the resilience, we have the abandoned love to live this life as the church, as his bride. That's where we worship from. That's where we trust him. That's where we hold fast to him, especially when circumstances around us shake especially when we come to a place where we don't know if we can make it through unless God holds fast to us as our bridegroom. So this past week, as I was thinking through these things, 
And I was, and I was thinking, how, how to preach about this? How do, you, how do you teach about something that feels so foreign at times and sometimes feels so out of reach? It feels so distant, so ideal. I felt like the Lord was asking for us to ask for a new revelation, a fresh revelation of who he is as our God and as our bridegroom. A God who is jealous for his bride. A God who fights for us. A God who in the midst of the worst possible times in our lives, he is there. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. A God who has pursued us even through our idolatry, our adultery. A God who has given us time after time, chance after chance. A God who even right now, even when we feel condemned or we feel like we're a failure or we feel like we're not enough or we feel like, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. In the midst of all this, he's a God who's not intimidated by our limitations, but he's a God who comes to meet us in that place. He comes and meets us where we are at. A God who's not expecting perfection from us right off the bat. He's a God who will take it upon himself to make for himself a bride that is without spot or wrinkle, a bride that will hold fast to him, a bride who will go through the tests of time, tribulation, trials, testing, and will come out the other side victorious. And that is who we are meant to be. And so this is my encouragement for us, especially during this time, especially during this time where Perhaps many of us who have been tuning online for this long, it's already been probably week, we're already in the mid-teens right now, probably week 14, 15, I, I've lost count already, where it feels like it's becoming kind of tiresome. It's becoming kind of like hard to maintain. It's becoming Ah, like, I don't know. Can we make it through? Like, what if this goes on for much longer? Which it probably will. In the midst of this, I would like us to take some time this upcoming week to ask the Lord for fresh revelation of who he is as a bridegroom. Sometimes it's very hard for us to kind of muster up our affection, muster up our faith. Like, I, like, I'm going to try to love him as best as I can. Man, I'm going to try to sing louder. I'm going to try to be better at my Bible reading. I'm going to try to be better about my prayer time. I'm going to try to be better at, you know, meeting, uh, whether in person or online with, our, with my community. And sometimes we're just trying to force affection and squeeze, you know, affection out of our hearts. Sometimes all it takes is for us to fix our eyes on God and ask him to remind us of who he is. A God who continues to pursue us. A God who sees not just the present, but also the future. And who sees where we're headed. He sees where our lives are headed. He sees even where our failures are headed. He sees a hope and a future for us. And already he sees a bride that is cleansed, a bride that is pure, a bride that is strong and persistent in her love and her affection and her faithfulness toward God. I just want to end with just these two verses at the very end of the Bible. As uh, Pastor JP 
and Sam join us once again. This is the very end of the Bible. And it reads this way. It reads, the spirit and the bride say, come. He who testifies these things. So Jesus was testifying this in the book of Revelation. He says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I just find it so interesting that at the very end of the Bible, the very end of all these things, and if you've read through the book of Revelation, it is quite an adventure, right? It's not like a mellow kind of like, oh, makes you feel fuzzy inside kind of book. It's a book of epic proportions where you don't know if you're going to make it through, if the church is going to make it through. At the very end of it, this book ends with the spirit, not, it doesn't end with the spirit and the body say come. It doesn't end with the spirit and the army say come. It doesn't end with the spirit and the temple of the Holy Spirit say come. For some reason, it says the bride. The church is described as the bride. There is something very particular about this identity that the church has as a bride. It's not just, it's not just obligation that gets her there. It's not just willpower and good accountability that gets her there. It's not just attendance and reading the right books and, you know, making the right decisions and using your money the right way that gets her there. It is a bride that understands that her heart moves the heart of God, a bride that understands that there's a shared future together, that she has a bridegroom that pursues her, that heals her, that draws close to her. It is a church that understands that identity of a bride, a bride that awaits that wedding day and awaits that future shared together. Not a, you can't be an indifferent bride. You can't be an apathetic bride. You can't be a bride that just you know, sits back and hopes for the best. No, it's a bride that eagerly awaits hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, the coming of her bridegroom. And so it's this church, this bride, in unison, perfect unison with the Holy Spirit, that say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And the beautiful part is that he testifies and he promises that he is coming and he is coming soon. Isn't this such an encouragement? Isn't this such a freeing reality that we aren't just asked to love him and asked to hold fast to him, but we were made for this. We are empowered to do this. The Holy Spirit at work in us will ensure that this is where the church is headed. A church that, like a bride, longs for the coming of her bridegroom, that understands that when good intentions and discipline and willpower fail her, love will hold fast to her. A bride that understands that no matter what tribulations and persecutions and hardships come her way. She will come out the other side, cleansed, pure, and waiting and longing for her bridegroom. Isn't that such a freeing promise that we're given through the Bible that he will do it 
even when we lack the faith, even when we feel like we're not measuring up. The spirit and the bride say, come. We will see a bride at the end of all this. We're going to see a bride that longs for his coming, that loves him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And that's where this is headed.